Hey everyone, I'm excited for you to listen to my podcast episode with Devin. A couple of things, uh, Devin is, uh, among other things, a mixed media artist, and I'm going to be referencing a couple of her images on the podcast. You can either see those images on her website, or if you're on my Substack, uh, I'll be putting those images on along with the interview link. And then the thing that I found really interesting uh, that might help those of you who aren't necessarily artists is she goes into some of the inner blocks that stop people from being creative. And I think that is something that anyone can uh, benefit from, even if they're not a mixed media artist. So uh, here is the conversation with Devin. Hope you enjoy. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Devin Wolf, who is a mixed media artist, a muralist, and an educator based in Southern California. Uh, she mentors artists, and she's known uh, in her own work for her use of bright colors and otherworldly settings. Her pieces are held by collectors around the globe, and she's also the host of uh, the podcast Art and Magic. Devin, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So when I see your work uh, on your website, there's definitely a very uh, particular uh, style or voice or vibe, whatever you call it. And I was actually looking at your work uh, in a collage of other artists, and it was really obvious which one was yours before even like sort of looking at uh, the description. And it might be helpful to maybe have your listeners hear from you in terms of your journey uh, to find your voice and style. Yeah, well, it's been a long journey, but I will do my best. So I'm self-taught. I started making art really as a way to like cope with some depression that I was having um, in my junior year of college. So it was a very therapeutic approach. I wasn't trying to say anything. I wasn't trying to do anything specific. I was really just trying to self-soothe. And that practice really evolved and carried me through some pretty tough years. And I got to a point with it where I started looking around at the other artists that I had kind of learned from by proxy, because again, I was just teaching myself because I had no exposure to art, no art classes, nothing like that. And I started to notice that they had their own style and something to say. And I also noticed that my work looked a little too much like theirs, which was fine because my art practice was just for myself. Um, But in wanting to share my work more and just feel good about what I was doing, uh, I started asking myself how I could break away from those influences. So I guess the start of the journey is that like my work wasn't my own. It was totally Mm -hmm. just like a remix of the techniques I was learning from other people online and what I was seeing and what was like trendy at the time, because I was just trying to figure out how to use my tools. And so then once I started asking, well, what would my work really look like? That kind of opened up a whole floodgate, I guess you could say. And I think some of the key moments in there were, how do I weed out everything I've leaned on for so long? How do I create something without looking at something else? And how do I figure out what I have to say and what's meaningful to me? And I guess 
answering those questions just came from a lot of introspection and a lot of making (laughs) and also getting feedback. That's been an important part of my style development as well. So I don't know. Does that answer your question? It's, I, I think it's kind of a broad, vague question. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint the specifics, but I guess that would be the general outline. Mm-hmm. And you studied philosophy in college, right? Not mm-hmm. art. Yep. Correct. And when you started um, creating art, it sounds like it, you probably still thought of it as more of a hobby uh, because you didn't sort of, I'm guessing you could have taken art classes if if you wanted to. Yeah, it's crazy how that didn't even cross my mind. Um, I was really doing it like as just, I didn't even know what art with a capital A was. I don't even think I understood at that time what fine art was. Like I took one art class in high school and I remember being kind of natural at it, but because I had no exposure or no inclination, I didn't even conceive of it as being a thing. Like Art to me at that time was me like getting high in my bedroom and making little stonery doodles. Like that's what art was to me. Um, And then it evolved, you know, as I traveled, I uh, had a sketchbook practice. And then when I came back from traveling, I started throwing around acrylic painting, like as some sort of emotional therapy, but it really never got to that point of art with a capital A until it did. And that was maybe like two or three years into it, maybe longer. I love to get to that point, but curious, like, uh, how did your travels uh, inspire or influence your art making at the time? Yeah, so I, after college, I did, how long, like nine months in Southeast Asia and India. And at that time, it was really just a sketchbook practice. It was more about documenting what was around me and like giving myself something to do, like on the long train rides and all of that. Um, I don't even know if I felt inspired at the time other than to just document what I was experiencing. Um, But then I traveled again a couple years later after I was a little deeper into my art practice and I attempted to live in Bali for a couple months. I thought I was going to live there long term, but it did not work out. Um, But at that time, I was much deeper into my art practice. And I think that might have been when I started using bright colors like Bali is very vibrant. The plants are very tropical. And I remember that having an influence. Also, when you travel, like the lighting is different all over the world and in different places. Um, Actually, side note, I think that's why my work is very bright now being in LA, Southern California. Um, We have very bright light. We're very known for that. Um, But Bali anyway, like the lighting there and the colors uh, definitely influenced what I was doing. That's really interesting because your prints, or at least the ones uh, that are prominent on your website, they're mostly indoor mm-hmm. uh, visuals, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so even though your work isn't necessarily focused on the outdoors, uh, it sounds like some of that still, some of the outdoor uh, lighting or vibe influenced uh, your work, even though the setting is different. Kind of, sort of. So I will say when I was traveling, my work was totally different. My work has gone through a huge evolution in the past couple of years. I didn't start doing these interior spaces really just until like 2020, 2020. Yeah, 2019, 2020. Um, Before that, I was doing very like abstract landscapes and it was actually a little more related to my surroundings. So when I was traveling and when I was in Bali, it was a little bit more aligned. The inspiration was anyway. Um, However, I think the lighting now just affects the way I see color. And so that might in part be why 
my work is so vibrant, but also lots of people live in LA and don't make bright work. So it could just be personal to me. Okay. And what happened for you that made it in from, I think you mentioned capital A art, right? Like what, mm-hmm. what, what, did something happen that made that shift for you? Yeah, I think that, I don't want to say I got bored with what I was doing, but I think I just like wanted a little bit more. Um, I had really been making with this intention of just like doing it for the process. And again, self-soothing, coping, personal therapy. And I got to a point where I was like, all right, that's cool. That's good. But like, what else, you know, is there, I'm spending so much time doing this. Like, is there more, is there room for more meaning and intention? And I didn't know it at the time, but I think asking that question was maybe leading me towards a more fine art practice. Cause I think that's, uh, more the vein that fine art is made in. Uh, so yeah, it was, I think it was like, okay, I've done this. What else? And you've also talked about how, uh, there are elements from your childhood that have really influenced, uh, your, at least your current work. So talk about like the girly, uh, color palettes. So I have like the ghosts of indulgence, like on, on my screen on the right. I'm, I'm like looking at it. Uh, and like, uh, you talk about like candy you like and games and cartoons from the nineties. So how, how did, like, how did you weave that through when you were, uh, uh, like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years after this childhood experience, how did, how did all those themes sort of come back into your art? Yeah. So I got to a point, it's really hard to pinpoint the exact moment. Cause I do think there was like a transition period where my work stopped being abstract and I started doing these more interior spaces. And I think that came from a place of wanting to express the claustrophobia I felt in childhood and the trappedness that I felt throughout my life. Um, So at first there really wasn't a lot of nostalgic elements. It was just rooms and spaces and explorations of confinement. But I think once I made the connection that it was so influenced by my childhood, I started bringing in those other elements and started building the world that I'm uh, working with now. So it started with the rooms. And then once I made the connection, I started weaving in the other elements. And when you say made that connection, what what was that? Was that like an aha moment or, or you just like through the process of iteration, just like had this insight? Well, typically I work in series and at that time, especially because I was doing a lot more exploring, I would kind of just let whatever wanted to come out, come out. And then I would reflect on the series to write about it and kind of ask myself what I thought happened. Now I don't work that way as much because I have a lot more insight into what I'm already doing so I can plan a little bit more, but that was how I was reflecting on my work at the time. So after I noticed that I was drawn to expressing feelings of trappedness and claustrophobia I think after I reflected on the work I had made and I was like oh why do I want to paint chains why do I want to paint bars on windows like this is weird why am I so drawn to doing this I was like oh I know why (laughs) (laughs) Uh, on that on that note something that a lot of creative people and artists struggle with is what is the boundary between like sharing your life history sharing content from your life uh because you know one can argue every, uh, 
all art is personal. It comes from your personal uh, experience and your lived experience. Uh, but what is what is the boundary between like overtly maybe sharing that uh, or showcasing that versus it uh, coming through more subtly? A person, you mean a personal boundary for me and my work? Well, yeah, maybe talk a little bit about how you uh, sort of because because when you say trap trapness, I can see that theme in your work. Uh, but it's, it's, I would say not necessarily as overt, uh, as, as you could draw that theme out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe we'd, we'd love to hear a little bit about your, like how you came to that, uh, like whatever was the boundary for you. And then you also work with a lot of other creative people and artists and how you yeah. like advise others on that. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing I'll say is my choice to make it not extremely obvious is not because I'm protecting my story or setting a boundary. Um, it's because of the way I'm desiring to tell the story. So I want to tell this story in a way that is also delicious and nostalgic and safe and utopic. And because I have an affinity for all those things too. And that's kind of what I'm expressing is um, this question of like, am I choosing to stay trapped as this person and in this time period, or am I being forced into it? And maybe there's a part of me that's choosing, and maybe there's a part of me that wants to remain there because it feels safer. And that story, th that story and those questions keep evolving. Like I'm learning more about it. So I'll just say like, that that's why it's painted in the way that it is. In terms of a boundary, in terms of what I say about the work, um, what feels comfortable for me is not naming specifics, you know? So, and mainly because I don't think it's necessary for somebody to know the specifics in order to resonate with the story that I'm telling or see them a part of themselves in it. You know, I don't think they need to know about, you know, I'm not even going to name it, but like family dynamics or whatever, you know? Um, so yeah, it's a combination of like what serves the work and what's comfortable for me. So I guess that's my own boundary. As far as other creatives, I guess I asked the same question. What is important for them in the work in order to get the message across, the intention across, or the story, you know, and how much needs to be revealed in order to deliver that? Because for somebody, um, I, I don't know why the example that comes to mind is this, have you read this memoir, Educated? <laughs> Nope. It was like very popular, okay. uh, but it's a memoir about a girl who grew up in like a very abusive, uh, like culty doomsday prepper household. It's super interesting. Um, and pretty much all the details are revealed. And I think in order to tell that story, she needed to do it in that way, you know? And so some stories do need to be told but like that. And then the second part, what is your comfortability level? Like, is it going to stop you from making the work if it's too revealing? Because in that case, it I, I would say then that's probably not worth it. Um, and I also think we change our levels of comfortability. You know, I feel a little bit more comfortable saying these, naming what the themes in my work are as I've come more to terms with them and I understand them deeper and I get more space and healing from it. Um, and maybe I wouldn't have been able to name them in the way I do now five years ago. So there's always room and possibility that we might reveal more or that boundary could change. But um I'm a big advocate of doing what's comfortable for you. Um, 
you've had a couple of other uh, themes and interests uh, through your career. So um, mysticism and spirituality. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also you talk about uh, psychedelics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so maybe let's start with uh, mysticism and spirituality. Unless, yeah. unless, the, the, unless you see them all as, as one thing. Uh, one. Not necessarily. I mean, it's funny. My relationship to these things has changed so much in the past year and even in the past six months. So I actually don't know. I'm curious, like, what you have read or where you found that. Uh, on your bio page? Yeah, I need to go update that. <laughs> I definitely need to go update that. I'm like, where did you find that? Does it How do I anywhere? know these things about you? It says it right on my website. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Definitely need to go look at that. But yeah. I'm curious to see how it's evolved over time. Okay. Well, hmm. I think that I used to, oh, man, I don't even know. It's so hard to talk about like spirituality, sp spirituality, spirituality and mysticism in concrete language. But I think that for a while I felt like I was like almost tapping into some sort of, I don't want to say real place, but I think I had this idea that like fairy tales were all rooted in something. And that if I'm like t tapping into my own, um, not fairy tale, but like, oh my gosh, there's the word for it. Some sort of made up story. Mythology. Like, yeah, mythology. Thank you. I was like, folklore, what am I looking for here? Um, that in some sense, like, I don't know, maybe I'm picking up on something in the ethers. I don't really think that anymore. I think that I, I used to be a lot more woo-woo than I am now. Hmm. Um, now, I would say, in general, like, no matter what you believe, there is something mysterious about creating work. And I'll probably never know where this work really comes from, or any art for that matter. And I think the unknown is just what makes it mystical. And we can choose to make that as special or as mundane as we want to. It's more about the meaning that maybe we assign to it. Um, yeah, I think that I, I think maybe, maybe I'm more humbled now. Maybe that's like the change. Mm. Maybe I'm much more in the realm of like, I truly have no idea and I'm not going to act like I do. Okay. <laughs> um, whereas maybe before I was like, no, I have some weird ideas. Uh, that feels like a little more naive to me in retrospect. Hmm. I'm like tempted to ask you about your weird ideas, but I don't. <laughs> um, well, maybe they're more related to psychedelics. So maybe we can talk about okay. that. Sure. Um, so again, my relationship to talking about psychedelics has changed because my relationship to them has changed. I feel a lot more cautious about um advertising things like this. I think I'm a lot more in tune with drawbacks, um, not from my own personal experience, but just things I've seen in the community, as well as some things in my own family, um, some risks that I don't think are as like talked about in this uh, psychedelic renaissance that people have claimed that we're in. That being said, um, it's absolutely influenced my art. You know, a lot of my experiences have absolutely brought me new ideas. Um, a lot of my healing has happened in psychedelic spaces or with psychedelics. So there's no way to divorce that, at least from the development that has happened up until this point. And I think people who have done psychedelics can probably see that in my work. 
Um, so I guess in terms of the weird ideas, I think I have maybe, well, yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe my art practice and psychedelics and spirituality were all just much more connected. And now I just feel a lot more cautious and a little bit actually like I want to move in a more grounded direction. Um, and, but I accept those things as part of my journey and they've, you know, brought me to where my work and I am now. So I guess those are okay things for the most part. Yeah. Um, the ghost of indulgence image that I referenced earlier, I'll put it in my like email so people listening can, can view it and it'll be on your website. It definitely has like that, a, a, a strip that's like very trippy almost. Right. Uh, oh, like the little like slide coming in. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and even it's dimensionality. Uh, but but I think you bring up a very interesting point, which is uh, uh, as uh, uh, you know, artists and creative people evolve over time, humans evolve over time, and there are things in your past that maybe at one point you really believed in, mm-hmm. but you know, as new information comes in, as uh, as you uh, evolve, you, you know, there's a kind of a you look back with cringe a little bit, like oh my god, did I, yeah. did I believe that? hundred percent cringe hundred percent cringe i was like oh that's on my website oh i gotta yeah. get think we're talking about this yeah yeah L- listeners we all felt that right so so, yeah. so like so, so, so like what do you do with that do you like like kind of put it aside do you just own it do you kind of own it like 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 what do you do well i guess in this moment i'm just owning it because i i absolutely just believe in being honest um I guess in terms of what do I do with it now, I'm sitting with it, you know, like my, my change in relationship to these things is also new. And so, you know, there might come a point where I feel a little more certain or a little more settled about my opinions. And maybe at that point I'll feel compelled to talk more about it, but because I'm just in an, I don't know phase and I'm transitioning a lot myself in terms of what I think is helpful and not helpful, what I think is useful to promote or not promote. Um, I'm a fan of just like staying quiet and kind of waiting on it until I feel a little more rooted and some time has gone by. Yeah. But I'm also happy to like talking, you know, claim it. And there's no point in pretending like I've been so smart and perfect for all these years. Cause I certainly have not. And I'm certainly not now. <laughs> yeah. And, and do you anticipate maybe this voice and style you've cultivated to like maybe change if as as part of what comes out of like sitting with this um I mean I expect my work to change just because I know that's the nature of making work and exploring new things I don't know if it will I don't think it will change because I'm changing my relationship to mysticism and psychedelics um in fact I think I won't because I think I think it won't because it exists pretty independently of that at this point. Mm. Um, it's not that intertwined with those things uh, anymore, even if those contributed to the development of it and maybe getting some ideas in the past. Um, but my work is, I would hope, always changing. So I'm sure, I hope in 20 years, it's not what I'm doing now. Yeah. Uh, something you mentioned about sitting with it, uh, I wanted you to... Well, I wanted to ask a related question. You've done a podcast episode on just like periods of stuckness, uh, mm. and and curious what um, doesn't sound like you, you're stuck, but it's but it did make me think of 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 that episode. What what is your 
experience working with artists who are in that phase of being stuck creatively mm-hmm. yeah usually when people are stuck there's something going on <laughs> the most simple answer uh although not the simplest to solve is like you know they're overwhelmed in their life they're busy they have other things going on they feel pulled in a million directions they work a job they have financial stress like all the shitty things that we all have to deal with and that is um causing stress in their creative practice that aside if that's not the case like if you have time resources and space to create um but you're just not able to or you're just feeling really stagnant in your practice usually we kind of need to look like under the hood of the car and see what's what's getting in the way so a lot of those things um you know they're the classics it's like it's a little boring but unfortunately they're often true like fear (laughs) fear of you know not being good enough fear of what people are going to think of us um shoulds feeling like we should be making art that is more serious more happy more intellectual more playful more palatable whatever um, and all these things and resistances and and fears, they get in the way of us like connecting to what we would really enjoy making. And so then if we're not enjoying what we're doing, we're not going to do it. Like, why would we? We only have so much free time. Why are we going to sit down and suffer? And so usually, you know, if I'm working with someone, it's a little bit of a process of trying to unearth what that thing is. And it's usually specific to them. Yet, like I mentioned, there are some commonalities since we are all human. <laughs> uh, and, and you actually have like uh, a worksheet that's like, you know, f- five blocks you could be, I, I, don't think, I don't think I'm naming it correctly, but five, five blocks yeah. of being an artist or something like that. Yeah, like things that could be standing in the way of you and your voice. Yeah. Uh, and we'll have to maybe spend some, some time just going through each one because I think uh, okay. it's actually really powerful. And I think some uh, something that, I find that's unique or different about you is you do go a little, like you said, under the hood of the car where you're looking at things that might be blocking you that are um, more psychological uh, Mm -hmm. in addition to obviously like things like technique or or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and so the first out of the five that that you bring up is, is shoulds, right? So how do, you, you gave us some examples of shoulds, but how, you know, how, how do shoulds enter our head in the first place? Oh, I mean, they're all around us. And it depends, of course, what your medium is and what realm you're existing in, because I know a lot of the classic ones for fine art, but I'm sure there's different ones for actors and musicians and podcasters and whatever. Um, so I'm more in tune with the classic ones of fine art, but they're everywhere. They come from our parents, our teachers, the media, uh, what we think like the best example of somebody in our desired career is doing what we perceive. Um, All of that subconscious stuff gets into our head. And, you know, even if it doesn't come from culture and media, often, I hate to bring it back to this, but unfortunately it's true what we pick up in childhood and what our parent dynamics, uh, like what what gets communicated to us, even non-verbally, often we internalize and the art practice is a really annoying but perfect way for it to come out uh so yeah they can come from anywhere but those are the main places <laughs> and were there any big shows that you had to like overcome to find your voice yeah um 
The first, I mean, there were so many, but the first one that comes to mind, I think is when I was transitioning my style, I felt like I should make work that like goes in people's homes, you know, that is going to be like neutral colored and easy to sell and people want to put it above their couch. Um, and the should was really more just like from a business perspective, like who the hell is going to buy something that is not that. Mm-hmm. And I had to just decide that I didn't care ultimately. Um, and it turns out like I actually sell way more now than I did then. Uh, but I think that was a big one. And you didn't care if people would be, uh, would like not put it up in their homes because of the style you ended up choosing. Well, it was more just that I didn't know if they would buy it. Like okay. I, I kind of imagined that people would only want to buy things from a place of like, this is decor. This matches my house. My stuff now is like very purple and neon and um, <laughs> funky, you know, like you have to have a weird house, but I guess a lot of people have weird houses yeah. because <laughs> cause they buy it. So <laughs> Or, or maybe they want their house to be weirder and your your work is the thing that takes takes I think that. that that does happen. Yeah. Have you do, do you ever visit the houses of buyers after a transaction? I a, get sent photos a okay. lot. And then I've of course I have a couple friends that have just been like, you know, collecting the mess ups of my work since day one. So their house is like a gallery of mine. So I see my work in their homes. Yeah. Um, I think that's it for the most part. I don't think I've been to somebody's house who I didn't know personally. That was just a collector, but I do get sent photos. Okay. Cool. Um, I think you were going to keep going. I was about the shoulds. I, I think so, but if not, we can. Um, I mean, maybe the only other thing to say about the shoulds is, you know, if, the whole point of the shoulds exercise is that a lot of these things are very, very subconscious until we actively go looking for them. So if you are feeling stuck because you have some shoulds operating, it might not feel like that until you Mm. actually sit down to write out, like, I think my art should, and you might be very surprised what you come up with. And you might get some answers as to why you're having a hard time making art, especially because a lot of times people have contradictory shoulds. <laughs> and so then you're really uh, like kind of in between a rock and a hard place there. But yeah, I think that's like, 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 like how so? Yeah. Like somebody could have a should of um, my, like, for example, like my art should be very accessible and everybody should be able to love it and understand it. Um, but my art should also be very like smart and intellectual and mm. highbrow. Like those things are actually in direct conflict to one another. <laughs> so you're gonna have a very hard time making that is a, yeah, that place. That is a good recipe to just like be really yeah. confused. Yes. Yeah. And and is the idea that like uh, you they're, maybe they're in your subconscious. You 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 become more aware of them and then one wins or they both like you 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 said both aside or how, how does that work you mean like when you go through to like like if you like in that example like you have two contradictory shoulds right so like okay you've identified them then, then what yeah so you've identified them and then i think you look at okay are any of these actually true like do i want to keep these you know are any of hmm. these serving me do i does my conscious mind actually agree with these you know Oh, so you get, um, you get to decide if you want to keep them or not. I think so. Yeah. Which, like, which, are they helpful? <laughs> sounds obvious when I say it out loud, but, but. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. that's the idea. Yeah. Um, because if they're not helpful, like, so let's say that is, you know, um, what somebody's dealing with, I would come back with, well, is that really true? You know, like in your opinion, if you were to really answer from a true place, like what makes good art, you know? And hopefully usually somebody will say like, you know, it's honest. It's not about, mm. um, you know, these like more external factors or pleasing other people. Cause I think in that should example, it's like, we're either trying to please our general audience or we're trying to please like a judge or a curator or something. Yeah. Um, but hopefully that's not why you're making work. And so if we can kind of just get down to the truth, hopefully the shoulds that we don't want to keep are like more superficial. And, you know, once we look at them, we can choose otherwise. Yeah. And then I also imagine once you identify a should and you make a decision to not follow the should, there is a step of courage required to get to that place of honesty because there is, there is no template. There is no, you should do it. There's just like a spark of honesty. Right. Yeah. It takes big, it takes bravery. I mean, that's why being an artist is hard. That's why um, people admire it when they see really good work and it's, it's a hard thing to get to, but I think if we can at least, if we can at least be aware of what shoulds are operating, we'll have a better shot. And there's no magic pill to increase bravery levels across artists. <laughs> um, if there was one, I, I think it would be like a supportive community, mm. but yeah, no, no magic pill. Yeah. Um, well, you have, a, you have a community, uh, of artists that you work with, uh, t tell us a little bit about like, what about community fosters that kind of risk-taking and bravery and honesty? Oh yeah, man. Community is so important for artists. Um, trying to think of, there's so many reasons, I guess for one, you're in the habit of talking about your work you know, so you get more comfortable doing that. You're in the habit of people seeing your work and hopefully your community is giving you like positive feedback and encouragement or, or helpful feedback, you know, if you ask for it. And so just that in itself is a confidence booster. Booster. I think whenever we're in isolation, like isolation breeds insecurity, you know, um, but anytime we can get out of our heads and talk to someone else, and particularly if that someone is somebody who is supportive and encouraging, like that's going to boost your confidence. And when your confidence is boosted, you're more able to take risks and make brave decisions. You'll also feel safer doing that if you've talked it out with someone first or they've given you feedback first. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think those would be the main ways it relates to risk-taking. Is there an art, no pun intended, of giving feedback you've noticed that improves work brings confidence but isn't demoralizing yes um i in the groups that i run i like to focus on reflections rather than feedback and unless somebody asks a specific question which we can talk about but in general i find that if we can just describe what we're seeing rather than make a judgment on it like this is good or this is bad or you should have done this or you know whatever um or i prefer xyz more just saying, like describing it, um, it actually helps the person make sense of how their work is coming across and if it's achieving their intention or not. And hopefully it validates. It, it can be very validating when, you know, 
you show your your work to a group of people who haven't seen it before and they just say how it makes them feel and it's exactly what you were going for that's a really good feeling even if it's like oh this is like dark and creepy if that's what you're going for like it feels good to have that communicated to you so yeah i think leaning into descriptions and reflections is a good method and this is very different than how art schools operate because my sister went to architecture school and there it's like it's like it's a critique that's that's what they call it mm-hmm. uh and and your report sounds very different than that yeah so in art school i mean i don't know about architecture school but in art school there's a big focus on like um defending why you're doing something hmm. and so um i think that's where the critique often comes from and the truth is outside of school and outside of academia like in the real world if you just want people to connect with your work and you want people to buy your work um that's really not so much of an issue and so i just don't find that helpful for working and developing artists at this point now if you want to go operate in a realm of academia and that's important to you then that would be helpful for you. I mean, it might be demoralizing. It might be hard. It's probably not going to be as fun, (laughs) Uh, but that's probably what you need to learn in the kind of feedback that you need. I just don't find that very helpful in a realm that most of us who are not in school are like operating. You're also, I think, implying that commercial success isn't necessarily tied to that kind of method or critique right mm, yeah no i think success um sorry you cut out for a second did you say financial success commercial success yeah commercial success yeah i think commercial success is about who connects with your work it's about making connections with people um so that's that's it (laughs) it it really has nothing to do with like proving your theory in fact that's going to be a a, like a divider between you and your audience I think if you try and make it too much like that but again it depends on who you're trying to connect with if you're trying to connect with like a very fancy gallery you might need something else but I don't see that as being as commercial and I should really like the way you describe that in terms of uh, commercialization you described it as connecting with your audience um, the the stereotype is artists and creative people are terrible uh, at the business side of things. Um, how, was that and so right now when when I look at your your website, there's like it's very business friendly in that you know people can like buy stuff from you. You have a Patreon and so on. Um, was that was that hard for you to uh, like develop that side? of your practice? So I have to say for myself, no. I think that like being business-minded and and whatnot was not really a challenge for me. I think it is hard when, you, when you're merging it with fine art because there's kind of an inherent contradiction. Business is typically about um, selling a product or a service and fine art is kind of sort of neither of those things. Mm. <laughs> fine art is actually not really supposed to be dependent on who buys it or not. 
in any other business, that would be completely permissible, right? It's completely normal in a business to gauge who's buying what and make your business decisions off of that. So fine art, I think is like the most touchy thing to have a business around. Um, and I'll just kind of leave it at that unless there's more interest there. But uh, one thing that was a challenge, I think was kind of mastering how to run it like a business. Cause I have to make money. I'm not a rich kid. Like a lot of people high up in the art world are, and that's like just a totally different place of privilege. Um, so I had to make it a business. I had to provide for myself, but I also didn't want it to feel super commercial. So I think merging this feeling of like, it's still fine art while making it business friendly, while making it profitable, that t- took a little more time and a little more finesse. Um, but, but just being a business person in general, no, I, I was pretty okay with that from the start. Uh, and in terms of the artists you work with, does it come up as a challenge for them? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think artists, well, for one, there's just like a lot to learn, right? You know, if you're new to the business space, particularly online business, some of these artists have never stepped into the, that space at all. I existed in it a little bit before I did art. So maybe I had more of an advantage there. Um, so for them, just like even learning how to build a website and just all the logistical stuff that to me now feels like second nature, they need like a little, um, assistance with. The other part of that though, is I think artists tend to be sensitive and introverted and I am hundred percent those things. But unfortunately, if you want to, um, promote your art, you have to promote. And I think that's what a lot of artists struggle with. And I, I struggle with that too, but I might have a more natural way with it than others. Uh, but that, that's probably the toughest point for a lot of artists I work with. Hmm. And in terms of promoting themselves out there, is it similar to like the blo- the blocks that stop you from finding your voice or are there other things that artists, that you've helped artists work through uh, to promote themselves? There can be similarities, but I think that there's another complication when it comes to self-promotion and that's social media. And I think a lot of us have big mixed feelings about that and rightfully so. And so I think the part that maybe is similar but different is we usually do a lot of work around, you know, what's right for you in a promotion space. Um, For some artists, depending on their personality, like going and being in person is going to be better. And for others, learning to deal with social media might be more fitting. Um, So I, I guess like the difference is, is there are some external obstacles that need to be navigated versus I think with the other thing, those obstacles are mainly internal. <laughs> mm. And and how does your personal style influence your social media strategy? Um, just my personality or you mean my art style? Or or, or well let's just say one's personal style. So for I'm 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 gonna make an assumption. Is it is it something like if you are someone who uh or if your if your if your work is very visual, or you like taking photos, or you're photogenic, Instagram is naturally the thing that you might want to gravitate towards. Or or is there a different way to think about it? Yeah, 
I think that's a good way to think about it. So for example, Instagram in and of itself can kind of be a creative place. So yeah, if you, and, and, and this is where artists for a long time have actually, Instagram has been a great place for them. That's changing. And now we all have a lot of mixed feelings about it. But originally Instagram was kind of like this perfect place for artists. We're already visually inclined. Instagram is a visual platform. We make visual work. Cats in the back. Uh, now with like all the video and stuff and just the way the algorithm works, it's, it's getting a little bit more complicated than that, but typically, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And then for some artists who are just like, I freaking hate technology. I don't want to do this at all. I would say like selling in person and like connecting locally and, uh, finding your local art community and going to markets and stuff that might be more up your alley. So yeah, that's kind of how I would think about it. And you mostly have a, a visual medium, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also have a podcast. So like, which is very, well, which is an audio medium. So like what, what made you decide to uh, invest your time in that? Yeah, well, I've pretty much taught about art in some capacity since I started selling my art. I think that second to making work, just talking about stuff <laughs> and diving into things has been very natural to me. So I've been teaching and running classes for maybe like four years before I started the podcast. And so the podcast just kind of ended up, oh, well, actually I got to a point where I wanted to separate those things a little bit. Like I wanted to separate my teaching, talking life, (laughs) even if it was art related from my actual work. I really wanted my website and my Instagram to really just serve as a portfolio for my work. And I wanted another place to connect with other artists and students. And so for one, there was like a a bit of um, compartmentalization there, but then also like podcasting is just such a natural, natural space for people who like to talk and think about stuff. And Mm. especially if you're a teacher and you already have lots of thoughts and stuff. So that was that. (laughs) So it sounds like you just had an affinity for that kind of medium as someone who likes to like talk about things. And and Mm -hmm. so it, it just naturally... Um, made it a good fit for you yeah it was a good outlet and I should say I hate video okay (laughs) like I like the audio talking is fine but like putting myself on an Instagram story or YouTube video is just a hundred percent not for me so this would be a good example of like knowing what you like to do and not what to do (laughs) and for the listeners before this interview started Devin did ask me if the video was going to be recorded yep I totally did that's right (laughs) um (laughs) Uh, along this theme of like artists and making money, something you name dropped in some of your podcasts is this term called late stage capitalism. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, Like, does that have any connection to like, yeah, like artists making money in your mind or is it two totally different like concepts? Uh, Okay, I'm not sure if I understand your question. Well, there is an implication of what the word late stage capitalism is an implication of something failing, like capitalism is failing, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And one could say that um, uh, out of the multiple people groups it's failing, uh, the artist is one of them, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's how I'm connecting the dots. But I'm curious, like, is does that connection apply to the way you were thinking about it or just generally how were you thinking about that term? Yeah. Okay, so I do think that that is a fair connection, but I also don't want to give late stage capitalism too much credit because, <laughs> um, like, all throughout time, 
Uh, artists have had a hard time being supported even before we had capitalism at all. Like even back when, um, you know, like artists had to rely on patrons, like, I don't even know what time period I'm thinking of, but before we came to America and we didn't have capitalism. Brief, brief uh, 15th century Europe. Yes. Thank you. Like, this is not my forte. Thank you. Um, so they've, they've always like had a model that was difficult. Um, and also now late stage capitalism is also failing artists, like, especially in the U S you know, we're like some of them, we are the most, I think, wealthy nation that, uh, where artists are underfunded and not supported. So there's that. Um, I think a lot of the times what I am also talking about when I name drop that, as you have said, is that, um, you know, capitalism and late stage capitalism is in my mind, not very conducive to human needs. Uh, it also requires us to produce and that's not really what artists do. <laughs> like your value in a capitalist system is about your production value. And so making fine art is very antithetical to that. So you have to find so many workarounds and also this applies to artists, but lots of humans. If you are a sensitive person who has mental health struggles and, you know, you can't work a nine to five or whatever else, like you're going to have a very hard time, uh, supporting yourself in a capitalist system. And it just so happens that artists often fall into that category. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people who are drawn to making art, like have disabilities, mental health issues, struggles, whatever. Uh, so I think that's probably why I refer to that a lot too. Yeah. And when you say artists are pushed to produce, uh, but that maybe is not in their nature, um, could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I, I kind of mentioned this before, but fine art is not a product. There certainly can be products that are also art. You know, there can be a lot of gray area here. But in general... Art is not something like if we're making it intentionally that we should be churning out like we're a factory. That's not really how good work is made. In fact, good work is often slow, takes time, contemplation, thoughtfulness. Um, it's not something that's one and done. And typically fine art is one of a kind. You're not, you're not making multiple of something. Again, there are production artists, there are ceramicists, there are things. But in general, that's the case. And so unfortunately, that fact is what adds to the challenge of financially supporting yourself as a fine artist. Yeah. And how have you made space in your uh, life and career for having that uh, space for reflection and, and like and like marinating on ideas and, and like and, and that process unfolding? And the the reality of like like you said like you you have to bring in revenue every mm -hmm. quarter month or, month or year. Yeah. So for a long time, what has been helpful for me, and I would advise to artists I work with, is diversifying your income. And especially if I've wanted to allow space for my work to develop in its own natural timing, like completely taking the financial pressure off. So. Um, teaching courses, offering things like prints, doing licensing, taking commissions, getting mural gigs. These are all things that exist. Well, not so much the teaching, but the other things exist more in a um, product and commercial space, which has allowed my art to kind of breathe. Um, not all artists have that luxury. And in fact, it's been very challenging. Most of my artist friends, it's kind of like 
yeah, I would like to take the financial pressure off of my work, but I can only do that so much because I'm spending so much time making it. I have to profit from it. And I find myself in that bind often as well. Um, for a while, I was just very stubborn. Like, no, my work just needs to be what it's going to be. I'm not going to sacrifice that at all. But as a result, I've also been very poor. So it's a trade-off. <laughs> <laughs> We've jumped around a little bit from our earlier conversation on, you know, the the five blocks of of finding your voice as an artist. But I think we've covered actually a couple, uh, but I do want to, you know, um, go a little deeper into two more uh, before we end mm-hmm. the interview, because I think it's like, uh, it was really impactful for me, just like going through them. And I think the listeners will really benefit. Uh, so uh, the other one you mentioned is worthiness. Mm-hmm. So say more about that and how that comes up for creatives and artists. Yeah. So, so much about making art, like when you're making your own work is putting your thoughts, truth, and ideas out there. So if you are inherently insecure or struggle with worthiness, that's going to be very, very hard. And I often notice students or artists that struggle with this one is like, they're always looking to somebody else to validate their ideas, or they might look to see that uh, the idea they want to do is already popular, you know, so they might follow follow a trend because it's already been validated, or they might um, lean too heavily on outside influences. And a lot of this just comes from like, they haven't, um, they haven't made peace with their own value and their own ideas having merit in and of themselves. And say someone who is listening who is maybe a beginner artist you know they might say well part of that is I don't I can't I might not trust my own voice or instincts because I'm still early in my journey do you think there's weight in that or do you think that's just more like uh, you still gotta lead into to um uh, like your value and your point of view yeah so so leaning into your instincts is of course going to be a learning process like getting comfortable with that, learning what your instincts even are, uh, just developing your ideas and making them better because they're not going to be as good when you're super novice. Usually that's all part of the process for sure. Um, but I think when I see this block, like really operating is where I'm like, all right, you've been making art for a little bit and you're clearly Mm -hmm. really stuck here. Um, we might need to like give some attention to this. So Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of both. And then um, the other one I want to talk about talk about is when uh, creatives aren't comfortable relying on their own authority. So how does that come up uh, for yourself or the people you've worked with? So I know I I wrote this specifically because I have some friends in mind that fit the bill, um, and they are my artist friends that do so good if somebody gives them a project or a prompt or a direction and they could probably carry it out better than I ever could. Like their skills are so next level, but if you're like, okay, what do you want to make? They have no idea. They, they just, they don't have their own sense of direction. And I actually think it is related to a worthiness thing. Like that can be the case, but it also can just be people who haven't exercised that muscle. I think 
like coming up with your own ideas and your own direction and letting that pull you forward is also sometimes a muscle that needs to be developed. And again, if we want to, you know, like bring it back to childhood and the family dynamics, it could be um, that like they had an overbearing parent who made all their decisions for them, or they never were in a position where they were allowed to step into that role. And so that, that piece of them could just be um, like afraid to step forward or uh, was never given the chance. There's also in the way I think about artists, they tend to be people who uh, stand against authority uh, just in their mm-hmm. in their own perspective point of view. So does that also make it more difficult because you've always identified as a thing against authority and now you have to step in and and claim it a little bit? That is an interesting thought and observation. I think that that might be a stereotype that's not as true as you think it is for all artists. Mm. Like, I think that that's more like the Hollywood version of an artist. And there certainly are plenty of versions of that. But I also see a lot of artists who like just love beauty and just love making, just love their craft, just love their skill. And it's that part that you're talking about that they like haven't cultivated and Mm. maybe could serve from like cultivating it a little bit. Um, but there's just, there's all kinds of artists. Like, yeah, some are very like political and like anti-authority and in your face. And maybe there's like part small part of me that is like more rebellious and resonates with that. But a lot of my friends really don't. Um, mm. A lot of my friends like just want to make their stuff, you know, they're just yeah. makers. Well, I appreciate you coming on this podcast and breaking stereotypes about artists. <laughs> um, it's, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Where can people uh, learn more about you and your work? Uh, so Instagram and TikTok are great places on Instagram. I'm at Devin Walls Art. TikTok, I'm Devin Walls. And my website is devinwalls.com. And that should take you to all the things. Oh, my podcast is Art and Magic. You can go there too. Yes. How do you recommend the podcast? A couple of announcements as this podcast comes to an end. The first is I am starting negotiation coaching. And if you find value in some of the content I put around negotiation, uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter or if you're on my Substack, just respond to an email and we can, we can chat. The other announcement is I am looking for ambassadors to help promote the podcast and in return, I am going to be offering some swag. So if that is of interest, again, you can message me on Twitter. My handle is at S-A-S-A-D-B. Or again, you can, uh, if you're on my Substack, just respond to my email and we'll set up time to chat.